Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation on the spiritual territory of depression with journalist and author Andrew Solomon. There is also a produced show called The Soul in Depression that includes parts of this interview and other voices. Find that wherever you got this podcast. I don't want you to sound the same as anyone, but um, I, I will say, I think we'll go ahead and start. I will say that I heard quite a few interviews with you when your book came out. When was that? Was that in 2000, 2001? It was June 2001. Okay. And um, and I felt like uh, a lot of it was just going over the gory details of your, you know, of your breakdowns, which uh, you, you know, and you've written very honestly about that. And I felt like there was a- often a fascination for the interviewer and what you'd been through and how you were willing to talk about it. Um, I guess... My interest is is really in getting inside that ex- experience with you more in a more contemplative way. And and again, you know, there's this sentence near the beginning of your book where you wrote, "I hated being depressed, but it was also in depression that I learned my own acreage, the full extent of my soul." Um, I I think I'd like to use that as the place where we start this conversation. You know, just what you mean by that. And also, I'm curious um, if you can remember when you what was happening to you when you first started to make that kind of connection, articulate it that way. I mean, could that happen to you when you were in the middle of depression, or or was it something that happened later that came to you later in that way? I think that the specific formulation came to me later, but I think the experience came to me not really while I was in the depression, but as I was emerging from it and as I was readjusting to a so-called non-depressed life uh, after the worst of the illness was over. I had come from a background, I'm Jewish, but we never had a religious practice in our household. I did go to Sunday school for a while when I was little. But I came from a fairly irreligious background, and my parents and my father in particular were great believers in science. And so I feel science was the religion of the household and expected to explain everything, and we had long conversations about that. And I held, I think, until the Depression came along, a somewhat more spiritual view of life than had been present in my household, but still a tendency not to look through that particular lens at my own experience and to think that my personality was to some extent the consequence of how I had been born and how I had been brought up at a fairly technical level. And when I was going through the depression, I had the sense that many of the qualities by which I had defined myself were abandoning me and that Mm -hmm. I was no longer the person whom I had previously been. And yet there was something within me that seemed to stay the same. And it was striking to me then, but very striking to me afterward, that while so many of the accessories of myself as conceived in the world had fallen away from me, something essential remained at the core. And I thought, what is that essential thing? And I had the sense at that point that it was, if there was some part of me that could survive the depression, it was the same part of me in a way that could survive beyond death. It was the same part of me that uh, was 
beyond my imagination, beyond my control, that was not constructed, I suppose, would be the best way right. to describe it. So, um, forgive me if I'm not yeah. fully articulate no, on this. No, the questions I haven't answered before. Good. Well, that's good. <coughs> um, I mean, so you're not, I mean, but you're not even just talking about your sort of your core identity yourself. You're really talking about something transcendent also, though, or ex- experiencing, experiencing it to be somehow transcendent. I think I am, and I think in the wake of the Depression, I'm aware of that essentially transcendent thing that lives within me in a way that I wasn't previously, and I can separate it much more clearly from the way I act in the world or the way I think in the world. It's something more profound than that. So I didn't think when I felt I'd discovered a soul that it was connected to any particular liturgical Mm -hmm. tradition, but I think that I had a kind of initiation into a very quiet and very personal mysticism, for want of a better word. Um, I had a sense, much more sharply than I ever had before, that, how to phrase this, Uh, I had a sense of the remarkableness of human life itself. I had a sense of its fragility but I also had a sense of an extraordinary resilience that lies very deep in many of us or most of us. And I thought that is a quality that has very little to do with atomic physics. I mean, doubtless (laughs) there are explanations that are linked into atomic physics, but I thought there is something more complex here. And it led me to the sense that while I believe strongly in the theory of evolution and scientific explanations of life, that there is something miraculous in the inside of a person that manages to exist against all odds. And it gave me a sympathy for the extreme faith of people who go through extreme suffering, something I'd never previously understood. I always thought, if you're suffering that much, how can you believe in something divine? Um, and one thing that I, I am also a person who has experienced uh, major depression. Uh, and I'm sorry. <laughs> thank you. Well, I... Uh, as you know, it's a, it's a mixed experience, which out of which comes a lot of good, um, or that was my experience too. I think what I found really refreshing about your book, and something that I don't think is out there enough, is you know what depression really is and what it really is not. Um, it's not sadness, really. Um, I think you say that the opposite of depression of depression is is human vitality, a vital sense of I was of just per- about to right? say that right now. Yeah, and um, that's it. I mean, and again, I mean, I'm also I'm also hearing that as an extension of what you just said about you know what you learned about something that was at the core of your being. Um, it's an experience, I think, overall of finding the most ordinary parts of life incredibly difficult, finding it difficult to eat, finding it difficult to get out of bed, finding it difficult and painful to go outside, being afraid all of the time and being overwhelmed all the time. And frequently, it's quite a sad experience to be afraid and overwhelmed all the time. Nonetheless, those are the essential qualities of it. It isn't, I think, primarily an experience of sadness. Right. And I think for many people who go through depression, there is a feeling that they're losing a grip on themselves and on who they've believed themselves to be. And I think when that loss becomes sufficiently profound, it's one of the 
primary motivators for suicide. It really throws people into a sense of internal chaos. If you can tolerate the internal chaos, then I think you emerge with a great deal of knowledge you didn't previously have. And I think also having gone through anything that difficult and painful leaves you with a sense that when you aren't in something so difficult and painful, life is very much worthy of celebration and you have an exuberance about your life itself. It also teaches you, of course, humility and I think it teaches a certain kindness because you're able to empathize better with people who have gone through difficulty or suffering. And it teaches you how big emotion is. It's mm-hmm. not simply something which is the consequence of, you know, the car honked at me and I felt annoyed or uh, even I fell in love and I felt happy. You have a sense that emotion is stronger within the self than anything else. Or even and emotion. changes the way you... Maybe it's even a... Maybe emotion is not even a big enough word for what you're, what you're describing. I mean... We well, we could go back to the world. But yeah, we could go back to the word soul. But um, the sense of the—I'm trying to think how to how to articulate it—the profundity of the inner self, I suppose, would be the best way of putting it. You have a new sense of the profundity of the inner self, and you get away from the distraction of what I would call the outer self. Mm-hmm. I mean, are, are passions, and maybe in a real classical sense of that word, also a way to talk about these the largeness of emotion that you're describing? I think passions are the only way to talk about it. Okay. Um, unfortunately, I feel like the word passion, like the word depression, like perhaps even the word soul, they've been used in popular context yes. so often that they've lost their dynamism in some ways. Mm-hmm. And so you say it's all about passions and people sort of say, oh, yes, you know, I have a passion for horseback riding. I'm passionately in love with Mrs. <laughs> Robinson. I mean, there are all yeah. of those ways in which passion is used. But yes, as you say, in a classical, profound sense, the passion, which is the essential motivator for all human activity. And in a sense, after you've been through a depression, you're much more aware of what you do and why you do it and whether you want to go on doing it, you're not always in control of those things, but you're aware that they're there to be considered. And that, again, is quite a mystical experience. It's, it gives you a different relationship to the world. It gives you a different sense of how your interior monologue really determines everything, and you're left mystified as to where that interior monologue originates and where those passions come from and why they're so mutable and what it is within them that's immutable. Mm. Um, just to keep going on this idea of what what you learn and what it is and what it isn't, I mean, it, it seems like you also make a very clear case that this is not about simply, uh, depression is not simply an escape from pain, Um that one thing you you learn to appreciate is the fact of pain in life um, as one of as one of the experiences of life that means that that is a sign of being alive, right? I had a very interesting conversation with a priest who's a friend of mine uh, and was a teacher when I was uh, at university. And I occasionally go to his church just to hear him speak because he's wonderfully articulate and many friends of mine from school belong to um, to St. Luke's, which is his congregation. 
And I was talking to him at one point about the purpose of suffering, and he said to me, it's a very narrow-minded idea that comes out of religion that all suffering has a purpose. Suffering is just suffering, and after you've been through the suffering, perhaps your relation to the world has changed, and perhaps it isn't, but suffering shouldn't be glorified. And I sort of quite strongly hold to that idea. I think there is something that's come out of the Judeo-Christian tradition that says there is a nobility in suffering in silence. But that being said, I think that suffering also gives one, it gives one breadth. Um, you know, emotion and self operate by and large in a fairly narrow range. And once you've been all the way to one extreme, you're aware of the capacity to go all the way to the other one. I think I've lost your question. Well, um, no, no, you haven't. And I'm not sure I asked it very well. I think what, what I'm getting at is... Um, I think one thing that depression does is even dampen your ability to feel the pain that you need to feel to get better in some cases. You know, there were, there were things I needed to work through in my life that I couldn't, I could not feel sad enough or have the will to work through them. I mean, I, I was less sad and in pain when the depression was there. Um, yes, this is a I'm hard thing to talk about. No, I'm with you 100% okay. because what I've been talking about really are ways that you feel after the depression. Yes. In the depression, yes. in the depression, of course, what you feel is a terrible numbness. And yeah. part of what's so alarming is that you can't feel overjoyed at joyful things, but you also can't feel very sad about sad things. I remember having the sense my first depression was fairly soon after my mother had died and I had been in such a state of grief. And suddenly when I was in depression, I felt I wasn't in that state of grief right. anymore. And I had been involved in a n number of writing projects and in a lot of emotional relationships that were structured to some extent around that profound grief. And when it disappeared in that way, and I was left with that numb feeling that it didn't matter. It didn't matter that my mother had died. It didn't matter that my book was being well-received. It didn't matter at either end of the spectrum. Uh, that was a very hollow, empty feeling. And I think you're right. If you're in acute active pain, it motivates you to act. And if what you're in is a state of numbness, there's nothing to energize you or drive you forward. So you do write about your mother's death, her suicide, which you, and you were there for her death. And that was clearly a very dramatic experience, an intimate one that you've shared in writing. Um, and I, I, I did want to ask you, you know, the, the difference between the experience of grief, which again is easy for people, I think, on the outside to confuse with the experience of depression. Um, and, I yeah. will say, because of the general topic of this show, something that was very surprising to me at the time. When my mother was dying, fairly shortly before she died, we were talking and I had said to her, you know, you gave me a wonderful life, you've been a remarkable mother, so on and so forth. And she said to me, as I've gone through this illness, the cancer that she had, there's one thing I realized I didn't give you and I wish I could have. She said, I didn't give you the gift of faith. It would be such a comfort under circumstances like this and it would provide such a specific knowledge mm -hmm. and it was something I didn't have and that I didn't have to give you, but I wish I had. Um, mm. That was very compelling to me. Um, being with her as she died was an incredibly intense emotional experience. It was um, an overwhelmingly sad and terrible experience. I think of it as the trigger, really, for my depression, but I didn't become depressed until quite some time after she died. 
I was writing a novel that was mostly about her. In the course of writing that novel, I felt I sustained a certain kind of intimacy. The passage from grief into nothingness was very alarming and very strange. There was a sense, I mean, I still would have said, you know, I'm terribly upset that my mother died and so on and so forth, but the the feeling went out of it. And right. I think that's why when the feeling comes back, you think, oh, this is this is a soul, this is a spirit, this is something profound and alive, which returned to me after taking a leave of absence. I guess there is that double-edged sword, though, that the, this extreme experience of depression, of nothingness, can, can in fact make you, when it lifts, can make you aware of something that you weren't aware of before, but... But there are people well, had, for, for whom it is extinguished, right? Or, or I've had very interesting experiences looking at the question of religion and depression in more explicit terms than we've been discussing. Well, tell me about that. And I wrote a little bit about a good friend of mine who actually goes to St. Luke's, Maggie Robbins, who has used religion as a way of structuring her life to avoid relapse into manic depression. Hmm. I found that some people who are depressed find in the depression that their faith is stronger than the depression and it's the thing that helps them get through. Whatever else they believe, they believe that there is a good and merciful God and they believe also, and I think significantly, that they have obligations to that God, an obligation to go on and to stay alive and to continue to do good somehow in the world. There are other people I've met who have always had strong faith, and the depression in damaging their entire emotional structure has destroyed that faith, and they have felt abandoned by God. And for those people, I think the faith is a burden and makes the experience of depression even worse than it otherwise would be because of that terrible feeling of a previously unimagined aloneness in the world of faith. Right. I mean, I think it's um, it's the psalmist's pit. It's the dark night of the soul. Um, do I mean, in your experience, do people is do people recover? Have you known people who've recovered their faith and it has changed afterwards, or do, has it disappeared completely and they can never reach back to it again? Some of each, mm-hmm. absolutely, some of each. Mm-hmm. Um, some people whose Faith has been renewed by the miracle of coming through. Some people for whom the issue is not so much faith, but having a reliable structure and who found the liturgical structures and explanations for life, even at their most formal, gave them a sense not of descending into the terrible chaos that other people descend into. But I've also met people who've said, if that could happen to me, then there is no God who loves me. And I can continue to attend religious ceremonies on a regular basis. I can continue to be with people who have that belief, but my belief is now shaky. But I think that follows on any major tragedy. Uh, One of my closest friends made a film about faith and doubt at Ground Zero, September 11th. Mm -hmm. And in the course of interviewing people, she found both people for whom faith had uh, intensified and people who had lost a lot of family in the Twin Towers and who had gone and seen the devastation there who said, I cannot believe in a just and merciful God in the face of this. And certainly one runs into a lot of that in connection with the true horrors of history like the Holocaust. Right. I mean, it's it's really the problem of evil in this case. It's what is called natural evil, your body, your being turning against you. And you see, I think in something like September 11th or even the Holocaust, 
what you have to come to terms with is the evil of human beings who can be very specifically identified as outside of you and who can be seen as people who are entirely lost to anything that we would respect or value, but who are still people and therefore in some sense independent agents. While I think that in a depression, you feel as though you've been abandoned by God and there is no external cause, there's in effect no one else to blame. Yes, and and you also write about how the battle, because of that, the the battle against depression is in some sense a battle with or against yourself, which which also makes the scientific and philosophical um, challenge a tricky one. Uh, do we? Well, you yeah, you on. do feel you do feel hideously betrayed by yourself. You feel as though you know who you are, you know what your mechanisms for coping are, you know when they're pushed over, and suddenly they vanish and. So there is a sense that you think, what, what can I lean on within, within myself? Um, I think that's one of the particular forms of anguish of depression is, I think depression is above all an illness of loneliness. I think the sense that you are unable to do things and that no one can help you. I mean, eventually you go to a doctor and he gives you some kind of medication or you go to another kind of doctor and he gives you psychotherapy or in fact, you go to a priest or a minister or a rabbi or somebody like that who sort of tries to encourage you and to keep you going through um, philosophical and theological argument, but you lose the sense of the inevitability of your own being alive. And that's the most lonely, isolating feeling. A friend of mine recently was um, dying of cancer and said, I'm living in a body that's turned against me. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a terrible, terrible idea. And then I thought when I was talking to someone who was depressed, this is someone living in a soul that's turned against him. And I thought that's in some ways not at all to trivialize the experience of people with cancer, but even harder to come to terms with. So you are making observations like that. I mean, what what kinds of... Do you have theological... Um, ideas in your own mind that come out of these conversations you're having with people. I mean, what does it mean to you? What does it say about the meaning of all this or about whatever you discovered inside yourself that you can look at a friend and say that's a soul turned against itself? I'm very resistant to doctrine, to the idea of specific miracles, to certain historical models that are celebrated, uh, my friend Maggie, who I mentioned earlier, has said that those very structures are what saved her. But for me, given the way that I was brought up, I can't bring myself to believe in them. Mm-hmm. But I have the sense of a presence, sometimes benign and sometimes not benign, that must have loaned us the logic according to which we live. It seems too complicated to have been hatched by mere happenstance. And yes, when I talk about, uh, I mean, I use that word soul very advisedly. I don't particularly mean something that will eventually acquire wings and go off to the kingdom of heaven. Um, I guess, though, if you say the mind or you say all of those things that get used in scientific discussions of depression, like um, emotional infrastructure and other phrases like that, Mm -hmm. they just seem to me not 
to capture Those are too clinical. This, yeah. <laughs> this essential self. And yeah. it seems to me that who you are is ultimately, I mean, who other people are is always mysterious. What I realized in the wake of depression is that who I am is fully mysterious to me. And so since I don't fully know it and since I can't fully comprehend it, it's not simply that I don't, it's that I can't. Then there has to be some mystical element in it and some element that's obviously present and yet beyond my comprehension. And that, I think, is what I was trying to characterize when I used the word soul, because I think the recognition of that fundamental reality has been much stronger in religious writing and in religious contemplation than it has been in other areas of considering an enterprise. Um, yeah, I think I, I know that you used the word n- near the very beginning of your book and right at the end again, I noticed. I'm not sure you used it yes. many other times throughout. Uh, that was quite deliberate, actually. Uh-huh. To I felt given that I don't, I didn't want to write a religious book because I am not in any very mainstream way a religious person, that I didn't want to adopt the word all the way through. But I felt that it was an important mode of description and I felt I wanted it to frame all of what I was saying. I'd like to talk about medication. <laughs> and uh, I wonder, I be, you are a, a person who, you are still on medication, I believe, on, and yes. I suppose will be forever, um, which is becoming the sort of the advisable way for people who've suffered multiple depression. Is that right? I mean, that is right, What yes. kind of regimen of of medication do you do you live with now? Well, I'm in the process of shifting things around because at the moment I'm on really more than I'd like to be. Mm-hmm. But right now I'm taking Lamictal, uh, Zyprexa, le, uh, sorry, Lamictal, Zyprexa, Lexapro, Buspar, and Welbutrin. So uh, I wonder if people ask you, um, how do you know that this person you are now and these observations you have to make, even this wisdom that you have, that that this is really you uh, when you are so influenced by chemicals? I mean, how do you think about that? I think that there's an artifice in the idea that there is a single authentic self that is immutable and yet uh, changeable in those surface and, in my mind, ultimately extremely important, but at some level trivial ways. I mean, I think who I am was vastly changed by my having the education I did, and that if I hadn't had that education, the chemical composition of my mind would be different, the way I understand the world would be different, my whole position in the world would be different. So taking these medications brings about effects which are also brought about by certain kinds of talking therapies and external experiences, and I'm a great believer in those therapies and also continue to work in those areas and arenas. And I think the idea that there is a real self and that changing it in any way with medication is artificial is like the idea that you really have teeth that fall out when you're 30 and that you're artificially changing them by using uh, modern dental care. I just <laughs> right. I just think the authentic thing um, goes through periods of flaw and illness and problem and that you have to address those problems. There's a lovely passage from The Winter's Tale, which I quote toward the end of the book, in which one character in the play has talked about uh, the idea that when 
you graft things and make a garden in which you have crossbred flowers and done all these things to develop these species that what you have is essentially artifice in the garden. And the response, beautifully phrased, and I wish I had it in front of me, I'd read it out loud. The response is, um, we are a part of nature. We are the ones who have developed these systems. These systems involve using products that occur in one way or another. Obviously, the word isn't product. These systems involve using ideas and technologies and materials that exist in nature. And so our art itself is nature. And I similarly feel that people worked out these medications. They help you mm -hmm. to be whole if you've had particular problems and are not whole anymore. And the idea that that runs contrary to some profound truth of who you are, I think is very artificial. You can decide not to take them because you are more comfortable with the self you are without those medications. But you could also decide to take them in the same way that you decide to go through rigorous exercise and a careful diet and all kinds of other things that very profoundly and fundamentally change who you are, um, who you are psychologically, who you are uh, mentally, who you are emotionally. You're constantly in a state of flux. So the fact that chemistry furthers that state of flux doesn't seem to me to run contrary to the basic natural fact of a human being. Here's a sentence I think may have been from that passage or your commentary on it. If humanity is of nature, then so are our inventions. That, yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and it ends that passage with um, the line, "Our that art itself is nature. Right. So, and, you know, you talked about the miracle of of emerging from depression and... and uh, there's this, you also quote the poet J Jane Kenyon, we try a new drug, a new combination of drugs, and suddenly I fall into my life again. And yes. from my own experience, I remember that. And I think that, again, is so hard for people to imagine who haven't been through this, that it is not like you are changed into someone new, but you fall into your own life again. It's so mysterious. <laughs> I feel that very strongly. I've talked with people some of the time and I think I relate this anecdote in the book, but there's somebody who I used to know slightly in London, and I was at a party and then was on my way home and ran into her in the street. And I said, oh, Jane, I've just been at Sarah's party. It was very, so on and so forth. And I said, how are you doing? And Jane said, well, I, I had a very serious depression. And I said, oh, I said, are you taking medications? Have you been in therapy? She said, no, I just decided it was the result of stress, and so I eliminated the stresses from my life. And I said, oh, what did you do? And she said, well, I broke up with my boyfriend because that was difficult, and I gave up my apartment to just live in a one-room place because I thought that would be less demanding. And um, I don't really go out to parties anymore because I find being with people is just very difficult for me. She went on and on with this catalog, <laughs> and I thought, that is not true to yourself. I've known you for years and you were a different person. I feel as though I've made, in effect, the opposite decision. I have the personality that is consistent with the personality I had when I was 10 and 20 and 25. 
and that then began to fall apart a little bit later on. And I have the strong sense that the medications have returned me to myself rather than that they've taken me away from right. myself. Yeah, and, you know, I was in a conversation recently with some extremely erudite people, one of them on the President's Council on Bioethics. You know, these are bioethicists, mm. and it's clear to me that none of them had suffered from depression because someone made an offhand comment about Prozac or something, and then someone else made a joke about how, isn't it terrible where we're coming to that, that we give these drugs to people so they'll be happy all the time? And that's, again, you know, going back to earlier in our conversation, it, 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 the drugs sometimes enable you to feel what is bad, but to truly feel it, to be alive also to real pain and real sadness. That's a paradox. I think that the drugs put you in a position in which you can achieve happiness. They certainly don't make you happy. No. It would be lovely to find something that did, but um, I certainly don't <laughs> think that we have anything of the kind now. I think... What happens when you're in a depression is that you lose the capacity to achieve any emotional state at all. And when you take the medication, you have back the potential for a range of emotions. But then to find the things that actually give you those emotions remains your private battle. So that anecdote about your friend in London and the one I just told and your own wrestling with this are examples of how we, even in our advanced 21st century, um, we're pretty confused about how body, mind, emotion, soul, and psyche work together. Um, I think one of the interesting parts of your book for me was you traced attitudes towards depression, you know, from ancient Greece to now. And I wondered, you know, what you might have learned from that about the wisdom of the ages, how we got where we are now. And I don't know what you took away from that about how human beings have wrestled with this subject? Well, the primary thing I would say on that front, in fact, is that St. Augustine has a lot to answer for, um, which I... I And not only on depression. (laughs) Exactly. Um, But I think that until Augustine and to some extent Thomas Aquinas, depression was seen as a perfectly reasonable ailment. And it was like having dyspepsia and you had it and you went to see somebody about it and they did whatever they could do and there was no shame attached to it. And then... Uh, Augustine in particular said that depression was an illness not of the body but of the soul and therefore if you suffered from depression it was a mark of God's disfavor and that completely transformed the way that depression was understood and is the basis for the stigma still attached to depression even though by and large we've now given up that Augustinian idea and so I think that uh, religion that Christian religion as it existed in the late Middle Ages essentially brought about a kind of horror surrounding depression, which was very much against the interest, certainly, of depressed people. And as I think you know, in the Inquisition, if you were depressed, it was seen as a, an indication that you didn't believe in ultimate redemption, because if you believed in ultimate redemption, you'd be very happy all the yeah, time. Right. And so depressed people could actually be imprisoned and uh, suffer the various other iniquities of the Inquisition because of their depression. So there was a strong sense that religion didn't allow room for this. And then there's the rather extraordinary story, since we are in America, of Cotton Mather, who wrote a book all about how terrible depression was and how people who were depressed should be sort of sent off and executed. And then his wife developed an acute depression, and he lived with her through that whole period. And he essentially hatched another theology, which was an American theology, which said 
this is a kind of suffering which is part of the great human suffering that God imposes on us, and these people deserve our sympathy, our support, any attempt we can give to help them get through, and they need always to be reminded of the love of God because that will bear them through these difficult times. So there was a real shift that came about, but that's a late 18th century shift that led, in fact, I think, to the improvement in the, well, Cotton Mather would be 17th century, but anyway, it led to the improvement in the treatment of and dealing with people with mental illness through the 19th and into the 20th centuries. But there was a very dark period there for many, many years. So I think that that legacy of Christian thinking is certainly still in our society, Um, although I don't think modern people are as, many modern people would tend to be as worried about God's judgment on them. I mean, how is the religious dynamic of depression different now? Do you have a sense of that? Well, Because ideas about God have changed? I mean, religion is such an encompassing word. I think in the American religious right, there is still a lot of stigma associated with depression and a belief that depression represents weakness and that one has to have strength in the face of it and very little sympathy for the idea that it's something beyond weakness or strength. It takes strength, I think, to be able to battle depression with medications, with therapy, in whatever way you battle it, to try to stand up to it. But the depression itself is not a marker of weakness. I think across the religious spectrum, one encounters a variety of attitudes. I mean, certainly at St. Luke's, which I mentioned before, there is a very sympathetic and supportive attitude toward that kind of illness in the liberal part of the Episcopal Church. Mm -hmm. Quakerism, which you'll be discussing with your other guest, has been extraordinary in its attitude. And Judaism has also been consistently very strong because there was never the belief that it was a compromise of the soul to be depressed. And so there has always been a literature of sympathy and a literature of endurance, really, that comes out of the book of Job, which says, as it were, just hold on tight. Mm. It isn't that God hates you. There's something else going on. I think a lot, actually, of William James's description of us as dogs at the feet of God. Do you know that passage? Uh, No, remind me of that. It's in the variety of religious experience. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's in the variety of religious experience, and he says, we think so often that God does something terrible and cruel, and we cannot understand how it could occur. In the same way, one has a dog, and one takes the dog and does some terrible experimental surgery on the dog, because that will ultimately save the lives of thousands and thousands of people. And it's terrible for the dog who has looked up to you and trusted you, but ultimately it serves the great benefit of the society altogether. Don't discuss it with the animal rights people, but anyway, that's what William James writes. And he said, we are in effect dogs at the feet of God, and we can't understand why he's doing the things that he's doing, and we can't make sense of them, but it is possible without having any comprehension of it to believe that there is ultimately a good purpose in it. And I think that there are very strong theological arguments there which say the depression is terrible, it serves some kind of purpose. And I think that's enormously helpful if you're depressed to feel like I can't believe in anything, but I have other people outside saying ultimately some good, some kind of good comes out of this, some kind of good comes out of your battle with it. You know, I was at a a theological conference recently and there was a discussion on psychology and, and the Bible. (laughs) And Mm. someone gave an analysis of Job 
that where he sort of went through Job and um, and concluded that Job was depressed. And I, you know, one of the somewhat whimsical things that passed through my mind was is that I was glad that they did not have antidepressants in Job's time because it might have robbed us of this great literature which has helped mm. so many people through darkness. Um, yeah. I would say Job on the contrary. <laughs> I mean, if Job had been depressed, which he had every right to be, I yeah. think he would have, um, you know, slit his throat and thrown himself in the river. <laughs> yeah. Job seems to me to have been unbelievably resilient through inexcusable, terrible, horrible things that happened to him. Mm. I mean, Job seems to me more like... I don't know, President Clinton during the Monica Lewinsky affair, he somehow remained resilient despite all of what was going on he to him. He did not lose his vitality, which is the opposite exactly. of depression. Yeah, I think so. I agree. The, the analysis was flawed. Um, I think I would... But I think, for yeah, example, sorry, mm -hmm. I think, for example, the author of Ecclesiastes is depressed, and I yes. think that the descriptions in Ecclesiastes... That, Excuse me. The descriptions in Ecclesiastes, yeah. all of the vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Uh, that stuff is very much the language of depression. So if yes. you're looking for poetry of depression in the Bible, I'd skip Job and turn to Ecclesiastes. Okay, that's right. And and but Job is really wrestling with the experience all the way through, right? Mm. Mm -hmm. mm. Um, I think I'd like to end with something that is uh, maybe the first line in your book. Uh, let me see where I, that depression is the flaw in love. What do you mean by that? It's a haunting sentence. Thank you. It seems to me that, in a way, the most fundamental and important capacity we have as human beings is the capacity for love. And I think the feeling of love couldn't exist without a range of other feelings that surround it. The primary one being the fear of loss. If the loss of someone you love didn't make you sad, then what substance would the love have? If your wife of 25 years died and you said, oh, well, she was nice. I'll meet someone else. I mean, that's not love as we understand it. And part of what gives love its poignancy and its power is the protectiveness that lies within it, which is a protectiveness of holding on. And I think that, therefore, the emotional range that includes great sadness and great pain is essential to the kind of love and attachment that we form. It seems to me that the kind of severe depression that we've been talking about represents an overactivity of the mood spectrum, but that without the basic mood spectrum of which depression is the extreme end, we couldn't have the experience of intimacy which that brings. And you also have spoken a lot about how, how the experience of depression for you uh, and also um, Let's say a recovery of the capacity or a deepening of your capacity for intimacy go together. Is that also, does that flow from that same thought? Yes, I think it does. I think the, I think the awareness of my own vulnerability has made me more aware of other people's vulnerability and more appreciative of people who cushion me from the things to which I am vulnerable. So I think it's made me both more loving and more receptive to love and given me a clearer sense than I would otherwise have had of the value of love. And I suppose, again, without wanting to get into a suggestion of specific doctrine, that that has also given me a sense that some abstract love in the world, which I suppose we could call the love of God, is essential 
and significant, and it has been increased in me, both in terms of my appreciation for it and my feeling of being loved or held. Okay, well, I think we're at an end. Is there anything else that this has brought up for you that you'd like to say? Anything you want to expand on? Or um, Let me just think for a second. Yeah. I think I would say that I think I would say that I found a particular comfort in the harder rhetoric of Judaism, though I vastly appreciate the more forgiving nature of the New Testament, that the Old Testament had a certain had a certain doctrine of acceptance and law and endurance and never said there's a point to suffering. It never said hmm. you're redeemed because someone died on the cross or that he died on the cross for good reason. The gist of the Old Testament, it comes back a little bit to what we said about Job, but also I think to the first five books, is that these terrible things happen and you just stick it out and maybe they get better and maybe they don't get better, but there's a kind of hardness in it which one would expect in a depression that what one needs is softness, and I think one does need softness from other people. But I found those basic lessons, which I had absorbed in those Sunday school lessons when I was a child, there was a sternness in them that I found very believable even when I was at my lowest, at a time when I couldn't have believed that God loved me. I could believe that there was logic and structure in the world. And so for me, as a Jew, I think that was a particularly potent comfort to me and guide to me through what was happening. You know, I, I think that's fascinating because on the surface it doesn't sound, I don't know, you would think that those passages might, especially might alienate modern a modern person, a sophisticated, educated city dweller. They're much easier to believe if you're a sophisticated city dweller. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's great. All right. Well, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. It's just what I thank hoped you. for. Thank yeah. you. It's been really fascinating. I'd be really grateful if you'd send me a tape of it or I will, absolutely. let me know if it's no. going to be well, on it, in New York. It will be on in New York, but I will send you a CD. Um, we're talking about producing this in January, so it'll be done sort of end of January, and I'll send you a CD, and I'll also let you know when it's going to be on in New York. Good. I'll look forward to that. If you feel you need anything else, let me know, and uh, okay. I'm around and about. All and right. as I told you, I'll be in Minneapolis for a little bit later I on. I know. I think I'm going to be away then, but maybe I'll meet you some other time when you come through. I will look forward to okay. that. And in the meanwhile, by the way, it's usually the case on radio, but you do have a particularly fluid speaking voice. It's very oh, nice to well, hear. thank you. I'm relatively new to radio, so I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>